Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with y'all. We are in our third week in our new series on the theme of Exodus in Scripture. And so for uh, just a quick recap here of the last couple of sermons, we talked about uh, God in the first sermon and how he uh, watched from afar his people, the sufferings that they went through, uh, how we have to deal with the times when God shows up, like he showed up at the burning bush, which is what we talked about, but also the chapters before that where he didn't show up in the burning bush. What do we do in the time period before he shows up in the miraculous ways? Then last week we talked, uh, Adam, our brother Adam, walked us through Moses' response to the burning bush and how um, you know, his response is a lot like our response sometimes when <clears throat> God asks us to do something. We're not always quite sure if we're up to it. We're not quite sure if we want to do it, <laughs> if this is where we should be headed. Um, but Moses eventually gets on board, thankfully. This morning, <laughs> that's right, this morning we're going to be getting into uh, the plagues. And so before we get into the plagues and into the battle of the gods, I want us to get in our time machines and, and try to get into the mindset of the ancient Egyptians. So bear with me here for a little bit. We're going to do a thought experiment. Uh, your name is Ameni. Your family has lived in the area around the Nile Delta in northern Egypt for centuries. You are a farmer like many of your neighbors. And while they didn't have photography back in the day, we do have uh, this beautiful burial chamber, which depicts a farmer from about the time period of the Exodus. So this is what your life would have looked like as a farmer. Uh, this, if, you were, uh, if you're a man, this would have been possibly you. If you're a woman, this would have been your husband. So it's late July, and the Nile sh uh, River should flood any time now. You know that when the water recedes, what's going to happen is it's going to deposit all that uh, beautiful minerals and things so that your plants will sur survive, they'll thrive. Now, when the, when the Nile floods, like it does in the late summer and early fall, and then when it recedes, what you do, because you're a polytheist, is you thank the god Happy, H-A-P-I. And here's a depiction of the god. So you'd be thankful. You might offer a sacrifice. You might do something uh, like that. Now, when the rain comes, uh, you don't thank Happy, because Happy is only the god of the Nile. You thank Tefnut. This is the god Tefnut. Now, when the sun helps your crops grow, you're not thanking Happy or Tefnut. You're going to talk to Amun-Ra. And Amun-Ra was one of the higher gods. Some people believe there, he was the highest god in the ancient Egyptian pantheon. Now, when the grain harvest was complete, uh, you're not talking to any of these gods. You're talking to uh, Neper or Nepit, the two twin gods of the grain harvest. So now, you're a farmer, and since you're a farmer, you keep your attention on this handful of gods. We just like flip through them really quickly. There's like four or five gods I just mentioned. But those are the gods that you're more interested in because those are the gods in your little circle of life and what you deal with since you're a farmer. Now, there are hundreds of other gods that you know about, but you don't really deal with them that much. You hope that the other people in your village are doing a good job worshiping those gods and taking care of those gods because you don't have really anything to do with them. Now, I want to ask you the question, what happened when the Nile flood didn't come? Or what happened when it was super late or super early and it screwed up your rhythm? Uh, maybe you might wonder why happy was punishing you. 
Uh, you might offer a sacrifice to Happy. You might try to placate Happy in some way. So what could you do to placate Happy's wrath? We don't, we don't know. You might do one thing. You might try another thing. It's not entirely clear how this whole thing works. Perhaps some stored up grain would work. Maybe an animal sacrifice or two. Who knows what it'll take, right? Those are your choices. Now, what if the sun shines too hard and you end up in a drought? You might wonder why Amun-Ra is punishing you. Why is the sun doing all this stuff? Why is it being hyperactive? Why are all my crops dying? You begin to get desperate. What can I do to satisfy the gods? How can I get myself out of the situation? Now, let's step back from this for a second. Notice that you never had a real relationship with any of these gods. Um, you know, you, all you can do is you watch these, what we would call in modern society, these natural disasters or these natural processes take place. And then you feel either the positive benefits or the negative benefits of those things. We would say all these things have scientific explanations. Um, but they would consider them either a blessing or a punishment based on what was going on in that situation. But it never is there ever a real relationship going on here. The only thing that you have is uh, when things go well, you thank the gods. When things don't go well, you try to placate the gods. There is no long-standing relationship. The gods don't really care about you. They're not interested in a relationship with you. They don't, uh, they don't want to uh, teach you something or anything like that. They just want to punish you or bless you. That's the only things that can happen. And again, sort of as an aside to what we're talking about today, I was thinking about the what kind of experience can we deal with today that sort of mirrors this kind of a thing? And, and finally, it dawned on me this morning as I was driving in, um, those of us who have dealt with narcissists, that's about the closest thing I can get to in our modern time. You, you can't have a relationship with a narcissist. All you can do is hope to placate them. And when things are good, they bless you. When things are bad, they punish you. That's, like, that's the extent of the relationship. So what you're dealing with in the ancient world with these polytheistic um, peoples is a system where they're worshiping these essentially fake narcissists. That's what these gods are. Now, there is one God. No, we're going to step back into the ancient Egypt for a second here. There is one God that you can have a relationship with, even if it's from afar. That's your human God, Pharaoh. That's right. So just like in later Rome, the Pharaohs of Egypt were considered to be gods in their own right. And Pharaoh, if you think about like what kind of mindset would it take to be a pharaoh or to be uh, a leader in ancient Rome or you know, to be like a god-man kind of a situation, um, this would have been a large part of their self-identity. Like, I'm a god. You're going to listen to me. You're going to obey me. You're going to do what I tell you to do, right? And one of the things that we know about ancient peoples and ancient empires is that um, any empire throughout history, all the way from then, even till now, all the empires of today, um, the key thing that you need, you need two things. You need order and you need prosperity. So we're going to hold on to all these ideas as we move through this morning. With this backdrop in mind, we're going to consider the accounts of Moses' interactions with Pharaoh and the plagues. Like I said, I've titled it Battle of the Gods. Uh, we're going to be pulling heavily from this book here, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. I think it's interesting that um, I came across this book. It was written by a rabbi, Rabbi David Foreman. And here we are in a synagogue worshiping. So there you go. We can open up to Exodus chapter 5. That's where we'll begin. We're going to sort of move quickly through about five chapters of Exodus. And don't worry, we're not going to read every verse. We're just going to skip around quite a bit. Um, but we're going to pick it up here in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. 
Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Uh, Rabbi Foreman in the book, Exodus, he almost passed over, uh, points out something really interesting about what happens in verse 1. When Moses says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, the point that he makes about Pharaoh is, is that this would have not made any sense at all to Pharaoh. Because remember, in a polytheistic world, we were just there a second ago. In a polytheistic world, what's the only thing you can do with a God? Can you have a real relationship with a God? Can you have a feast with a God? No, they don't care about you. All you can do is placate them. So Pharaoh's, this doesn't make any sense to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, what are you talking about? Go and have a feast with your God. We don't have any gods that want to have a relationship with us. This is crazy talk. And on top of that, I've got hundreds of gods, but I don't know anything about this Yahweh. How do I know that you're not lying and making it up? It sounds made up to Pharaoh. We have to give him at least the benefit of that doubt. It sounds completely made up. He's never heard of a God like this. So in verse 3, this is what Moses says in response. He says, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Notice no longer talk of Yahweh. They're contextualizing it with their people. The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So I'm not sure exactly if what Moses says here was what God wanted him to say or whether Moses is just sort of rolling with what he knows off the top of his head of ancient Egyptian society and this polytheistic mindset that he knows Pharaoh is dealing with. But it seems to me like he's trying to put it in, in, a, in a framework that Pharaoh can at least understand. And the framework is, if you don't let us do what our God wants us to do, then we're going to get punished with pestilence and with, sword, with a sword. And that would have, I think, actually communicated to Pharaoh. And we get his response in, in verse 4, where it, it seems like he's starting to catch up and, and think about this. So, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. So, um, Pharaoh seems to respond by saying, uh, okay, it sounds like you actually fear this Yahweh, like I fear some of my gods. Okay, that makes sense to me. Uh, but I'm a god too, you should fear me more. That's Pharaoh's response. I'm a god, you should fear me more. So it's interesting, um, multiple scholars have pointed out that with this move, he's actually being a bad polytheist. A good polytheist would say, okay, you can go out in the wilderness for a couple days, sacrifice to your God, placate your God, come back, everything will be good. And if Pharaoh had actually done that, who knows what the Exodus would have looked like. It probably would have looked a little bit differently. We probably wouldn't have ended up with all these plagues, and the story could have been quite different, I think. Now, I want to take a step back for a second here as well. Um, if we think about the context, what we've been dealing with in the last couple chapters of Exodus, uh, the Hebrew people have only been a blessing to Egypt from the very beginning. Uh, Joseph, centuries earlier, he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. He rises to power. Um, he predicts this coming famine, helps Egypt avoid the famine. Not only does he help Egypt avoid the famine, but Egypt becomes like the, the uh, well, they were the breadbasket of the world at that point, that part of the world anyway, but everyone else experienced famine. They still had supply left over, so they were selling um, to the rest of that part of the world for years and years and years. The Bible describes in the book of Genesis how that process led to the pharaohs actually gaining control and ownership of all the land of Egypt. 
So through Joseph's wisdom and God's power, Pharaoh has actually consolidated power in Egypt to the point where he owns all the land, he has all the authority, and he already was a king, he already was a god, but now he has even more. All this has come through the power of God being sort of coerced and co-opted. Now, in the wake of all of this, centuries later, the pharaohs decide that they're going to actually enslave the people of God. On top of all the insult to injury of all the blessings that God's provided through these people to Egypt to this point, they're going to enslave these people, the Hebrews, to force them to be slaves. So what the pharaohs are doing is they're taking God's blessing upon his people and they're, they're, they're weaponizing it. They're, they're, they're co-opting it. They're taking it for themselves. They're taking that blessing. They're stealing the blessing for themselves. And in doing so, the pharaohs, like I said, they think that they're God. They're taking on Yahweh without even knowing that they're taking on Yahweh because they don't, they don't know who Yahweh is. And they continue to identify themselves as God. They continue to believe that they're more powerful than Yahweh without consciously recognizing that there's a battle going on. So they're, they, for centuries, have been having this battle with Yahweh, and they don't even know. They don't even know. They're not even aware. And now here, what Moses is doing is he's beginning this process of lifting the veil. He's beginning this process of showing them, look, you've been fighting with this God that you don't even know about for hundreds of years. And now something's going to happen. And Pharaoh has a chance to respond graciously. Uh, the Pharaoh centuries before who knew Joseph, the, the Pharaoh who dealt with Joseph, did respond graciously to this kind of thing. But this Pharaoh is not going to respond graciously. And instead, he asks the question, who is Yahweh? And we can interpret the rest of what we're going to read this morning as the answer to who is Yahweh. <laughs> Yahweh is going to answer the question. Seven times in scripture in this period, all the way up through Exodus 14, God's going to say something along the lines of, I am doing this so that you will know that I am Yahweh. Here are the seven times it happens. Now, those of you who know a little bit about biblical numerology, seven's going to set off some alarm bells. It's one of those perfect Jewish numbers. God's going to perfectly describe who he is through what happens in the next couple chapters. Um, you know, the, we, we read, most, most translations have it something like that, what I said. I am doing this so that you know that I am Yahweh. In modern parlance, in our modern society, we might say something more to the point. Pharaoh, you mess around and you're going to find out. <laughs> mess around and find out. That's what, that's what Pharaoh's going to do here. So how, in all seriousness, how does the way that the Exodus went tell us more about God's goals in the Exodus? Uh, God could have told his people to leave in the middle of the night. Uh, he could have taken his people on a magic carpet ride, as Rabbi Foreman suggests. Uh, there are a number of ways that this could have played out, but didn't. So I want to pose two questions here before we, we begin going through these plagues. What if God didn't just want to rescue the Hebrew people from slavery to serve him? Certainly that was a large portion of the goal of the Exodus. That's what he wanted to accomplish. But that's not the only thing I submit to you that he wanted to accomplish. What if God also wanted to demonstrate his unique nature to the nation of Egypt in order to call others to him? Because the plagues and what we're going to read about, it's not the fastest way to get people out of Egypt. <laughs> it's just not. And this process would have taken months, by the way. We're going to read it very quickly, but this process, it could have taken as many as like nine months to a year for this whole thing to play out. 
we're going to turn now to Exodus chapter 7. In the, in the wake of what Moses does, um, things don't get easier for the Hebrew people. Um, they get told to make more bricks, and they get told they're not going to have straw provided for them. So in the short term, for months, they have to deal with more difficulty. God has shown up, but they have to deal with more difficulty. They get mad at Moses. They have this back and forth. Eventually, we find Yahweh sending Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. Then the Lord, then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Now, have you ever wondered why God would choose that particular sign to make Aaron's staff into a snake? Well, snakes were an important symbol in Egyptian theology, and it was a sign of royal authority. We're going to go back to King Tut's mask here. What do you notice prominently on the top of King Tut's head there? It's this cobra Copra popping straight out right at you. So the snake was a symbol of the authority of Pharaoh. And again, Pharaoh considers himself to be a god, right? So producing a snake would have been a direct challenge to the authority of Pharaoh. It's really interesting here that the uh, magicians are able to produce snakes also through. They throw their staffs down. Look, they become a snake. And, and Pharaoh might be able to say, look, man, my magicians can do the same thing. It's no big deal. Like, who, how, what's, the, what's the deal with this Yahweh guy? You know, my magicians can, did the same thing. There's something subtle that happens here that Rabbi Foreman points out that should have gotten his attention. As, as Pharaoh's probably gloating, like, oh, look, my magicians did the same thing. What happens? Aaron's staff swallows all the other staffs. <laughs> Now, if you want to take a polytheist who believes in many gods, and you want to describe that there's this one god who's sort of over everything, how would you go about doing that? You might look like something where one snake swallows up all these other snakes, right? It's a subtle clue. It's a subtle hint. It's the beginning, again, of we're lifting this veil off of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh, as we're going to find out, He's, he's a particularly stubborn individual, this Pharaoh. He's, he does not want to relent quite yet. He doesn't want to give up on the battle. So that leads us to the first plague, which happens right here in the context. Verse 14. Then the Lord, then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Here's one of those times. Behold, when the staff that is in my hand, uh, that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch, over, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. 
Moses and Aaron obey. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded in the sight of Pharaoh. In the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not, even, he did not take even this to heart. So why, why start here? Why start with the, the blood in the Nile? Well, the Nile was the engine of the Egyptian society. Uh, the Nile, like I said in the beginning, was the foundation for their whole agriculture, and agriculture was a large foundation of what led to the power of Egypt and the prosperity of Egypt. So, but striking the Nile, and, and of course they had, a, they had the god Happy, who was over the Nile, who was the god of the Nile. But striking the Nile was not just a rebuke of the Egyptian gods, although that's, that's part of it. This is also striking at the foundation of society. Remember, when you have a polytheistic worldview, when you have a polytheistic society, those two things are related. The economy, prosperity, uh, the government, uh, the pantheon of gods, all these things are interrelated. And, and so when you start knocking out pillars here and pillars there, you have to do work in multiple fronts. And so what this is doing, attacking the Nile like this, is doing multiple things. By immediately striking the Nile, Yahweh is saying, I'm in control, not happy, not your other gods. And if you want to continue attacking my people, I will continue to disrupt your lives, your crops, your society. Now, Pharaoh doesn't relent. Again, we have pretty strong evidence that something miraculous is going on here. Pharaoh doesn't relent because, his, again, his magicians are able to do the same thing. It's interesting that the magicians weren't able to undo it. You might think that that might get... Pharaoh's attention more, but nonetheless, we can give Pharaoh a little bit of a pass here. The magicians were able to also make the Nile blood, as useful as that is in that situation. Um, but another interesting point here, you know, so it's not just an attack on the gods, although it is. It's not just an attack on the economy, though it is. It's also, I think, a point back to uh, something we talked about earlier in the story. Where else did we find blood in the Nile already in the book of Exodus? Well, hundreds of years before this, there was an evil pharaoh who said, I want you to throw your baby boys into the Nile. So there was God's people's blood in the Nile a hundred years before this happened. And so God is saying, okay, you want to put my blood, my people's blood in your Nile? I'm going to put blood in your Nile. So God is hearkening back to that moment. And in this, we can remember that God has not forgotten the trials of his people. He's not forgotten the trials of his people. So there's so much going on here. So much going on here. Now, as the plagues continue, um, you know, the magicians are, sh are in short supply and not going to be able to replicate what God does. Okay, we're going to get a couple plagues ahead and all of a sudden they're not able to replicate it. Uh, by plague six, the plague of boils, the magicians are so screwed up with the boils on their body, they can't even stand before Moses and Aaron. They're like, they're benched. They're like, they can't even come into court. They're hurting so bad from plague number six. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the plagues increase in intensity. And at some point, the magicians just bow out. They're no longer part of the problem. They're no longer fighting this battle anymore. They're, they're sidelined. During this whole time, Pharaoh does a really interesting thing that Rabbi Foreman points out in his book. And that is that Pharaoh's not just fixated on the power of Yahweh, he's fixated on the precision of Yahweh. 
for example, in the second plague, um, when Pharaoh and Moses are having this conversation about uh, removing the plagues, because after every plague, Moses goes to God and says, God will remove this plague, and the plague gets removed, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then we end up with the next plague in succession, right? So what happens is um, Moses and Pharaoh have this conversation about when is this plague of frogs going to end? And Moses asks Pharaoh, hey, when would you like it to end? Because God knows, you know, he's trying, to, he's trying to teach this Pharaoh, like, how powerful he is. And he knows that this precision means something to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh doesn't say, like, now, take it away right now, immediately. Pharaoh says tomorrow. And the reason why he says tomorrow is so that he knows it's not like some weird parlor trick or something. Like, he, he knows that Yahweh is actually God. He doesn't ask for the immediate removal of the frogs. And, and I think Rabbi Foreman is right about Pharaoh being interested in the precision because Pharaoh lives in a polytheistic world where tsunamis happen, earthquakes happen, these amazing things happen, and the power is there, but the precision isn't. And these are all natural disasters. Pharaoh's used to those types of things. But what Pharaoh's not used to is a God calling a shot and like being super precise about it. That's completely new, completely foreign. It's the idea that, that, that Yahweh could remove the plague of frogs at a specific time this is something new, and this should have woken Pharaoh up, but it doesn't. Now, notice also, we're going to read real quick here, the reaction to the fifth plague, Exodus chapter 9. Pharaoh responds very strangely to the news that the plague was complete. So the fifth plague was the Egyptian livestock die. And verse 7 says, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So what happened was, is Moses said, hey, all your livestock are going to die, but our, our livestock are not going to die. And Pharaoh's like, okay, I guess we'll find out. And so when he finds out, you get reports from your land that like all this livestock in Egypt has, has died. Imagine if the, in the United States there was like this massive thing that happened and I said like only in Kentucky will these horses not die. And then the president of the United States found out like, okay, yes, this, this thing has happened and all these horses around the country have died, but they, you know, the first thing that you think the first thing the president's going to do is he's going to reach out to Kentucky and say, hey, is it true that none of your horses have died? No, he's going to go meet with the people all over the place and be like, I'm so sorry your horses have died. Like, that's what a compassionate kind of leader, you can think what you want about our president, but that's what a normal common sense kind of person would do in that kind of a situation. But what happens here is Pharaoh's not concerned with the loss of his people. He's just concerned to see if Moses called his shot right. And if, if Yahweh followed it up the way that he said he was going to. He's like overly obsessed with how precise these plagues are. And the reason is because, like I said, we're trying to teach a polytheist how to become a monotheist. And in that process, he has to give up his own divinity. And that's why ultimately he doesn't want to relent. Now, the seventh plague was another incredible sign. Um, Yahweh repeatedly tells Moses this is going to be a sign like they've never seen before in all of Egypt. Now, we've already been through like six of them. And the seventh one is going to be something even like more amazing. Now, this is what our English translations say about it in Exodus chapter 9, verse 23. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now, 
up here on the slide, I pointed out that that word for fire gets rendered lightning in many English translations. Many English translations reckon it lightning. And that's because what, we're, what these translations are trying to do is they're trying to smooth over an apparent difficulty in the Hebrew text. Uh, because that's, you know, we're trying to make sense of what the Hebrew says. We're trying to interpret it in light of our modern scientific sensibilities. Oh, fire running down from heaven, that has to be, uh, has to be talking about lightning. That's what it's describing. It's describing lightning, right? That's what Rabbi Foreman says about this particular plague. And he starts with his own translation of the Hebrew. This is what he translates it as. And there was hail and fire encased inside the hail. And this is what he says about it. He says, fire and ice together in one hailstone. Now, to some extent, all of the plagues were unique occurrences. It wasn't like the Nile turned to blood every day. Nevertheless, something about what was happening here in the plague of hail was dramatically unexpected, even by the high standards of the plagues themselves. Fire and ice coexisting in hailstones. He concludes, if there were ever two gods that could be counted on to never join forces, it would have to be the ice and fire gods. They're sworn enemies. Mere contact between them leads to their mutual extinction. That's the end of the quote there. Now, what's really fascinating about the seventh plague is that Pharaoh actually uh, gains some moral awareness of his situation. He understands his moral responsibility in the wake of, of this plague. The Bible never calls Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go a sin until this plague. We read in verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth's the earth is Yahweh's. So Pharaoh, he does, in this moment of clarity, because of this hail that was fire and ice in the same little thing, in this moment of clarity, he recognizes that he's wrong. He recognizes that he should not be a God, that there is only one true God, but he still does not relent. He does not relent. He wants to remain in control. He does not want to recognize Yahweh is the supreme one. There's an eighth plague. The last plague we're going to discuss today is the, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Plague served two major purposes. First, it's a demonstration of Yahweh's authority over Egypt and all of her gods. Like I said at the beginning, Amun-Ra was considered, is considered by many historians to probably be the preeminent god in Egypt. And so by giving complete darkness for three days, Yahweh is saying, oh, you think, you think Amun-Ra is in charge of this whole thing? No, I'm in charge of this whole thing. The sun god, Amun-Ra, is powerless against Yahweh. And again, secondly, and remember when we're dealing with a polytheistic society, you've got Pharaoh, you've got all these gods, you've got the economy, you've got justice and, and social order, and you've got all this stuff wrapped up together. But when you shut down uh, uh, darkness like this, shut down the country for three days. No one did anything. They stayed in their homes. They didn't move. 
So it's a complete shutdown of the Egyptian economy. You thought the water, you know, the river turning into blood was bad in terms of sh shutting down the economy. This is a complete and total shutdown of the economy. So what Yahweh is doing is he's taking this, you can imagine the country of Egypt as this beautiful woven blanket. It's got all these things intermixed with it. It's got this polytheism. It's got this law and order. It's got this prosperity that's mostly been fueled by God's goodness for the last hundred, couple hundred years. And it's, got, it's woven together beautifully. And what Yahweh's doing is he's, he's pulling it apart, thread by thread. He's pulling it apart, asking them to stop, asking them to give up on this battle that they're fighting against him. There's no longer an excuse to not believe in Yahweh. At this point, everyone must recognize that Yahweh is God. There is no other God. And interestingly enough, we find that by the time that our Hebrew forefathers left Egypt, they didn't leave alone. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 says that there was a mixed multitude that went out with them. And scholars are uncertain exactly who these people are. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly who these people are. But what we do know is we do know that Egypt was as cosmopolitan a place in the ancient world as America is today. It was the ancient equivalent of that. We could have, you could have had people from lower Africa, which remember Egypt's in the very northern part of Africa. So lower parts of Africa could have been either parts enslaved or people working or people just observing what was going on. It could have been other tribes from what we would now call the Middle East. Uh, Egypt at various points um, controlled all of like what we call now Saudi Arabia and different other places in the world. So what I'm, what I'm trying to point out here is, is that the Hebrew people who would have been listening to Moses and, and, and engaging with God throughout this whole process of these plagues, they left. But they weren't the only ones who left. The process that God went through, the, the process that God underwent through these plagues was designed to demonstrate to a polytheistic society that there is no other God but Yahweh. And people got the message. Pharaoh didn't get the message. But we've already talked about how he had this intense reason not to. He was a god in that system. He wanted to be self-justifying. And I think we as people who also self-justify can understand that. Although he doesn't get off the hook. God never uh, breaks his free will. We didn't talk about hardening today, but um, in the deep dive I'll do later this week, I will talk a lot about hardening. So look forward to that. But I will say this, God never breaks Pharaoh's free will. God never breaks Pharaoh's free will. It's all above board. God doesn't twist his arm and force him to sin. God doesn't do that. God calls people to repentance. And what, the way that God did that in this process is through the plagues. He's trying to get Pharaoh's attention. He's trying to get these people's attention. And some people listened. And they left with Israel. So where does all this fit with our personal tracing of the Exodus? We've been um, reflecting on how uh, this powerful story and the stories underneath this grand story of Exodus, how they map onto our lives. And we've talked about how God uh, has reached out to us, and now we have to respond to that. Um, today, with what we've talked about today, early in what we talked about this, uh, this morning in Exodus 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh ends up making life harder for the Hebrew slaves in, in the short term. In the short term, things get worse. They have to make that brick without straw. They have to make more brick with less straw, with no straw. In fact, they have to get their own straw for themselves. And I, I think there's a really cool point for us here as well. And that is that 
when we encounter, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about what happens when God doesn't show up, right? The way that we expect him to when we have to wait. Um, and then, you know, he does show up and then how do we respond then when he shows up in the burning bush or when he parts the sea or when he does something miraculous. But here's another point, which is even when God does show up, he shows up in the burning bush. He shows up by leading Moses and Aaron. He gives them this incredible sign. In the short term, life might still get hard or harder. It may not be better just because God has shown up. Because sometimes what's going on is, is that God has a larger story of deliverance that he's trying to play out, and you're playing a part of it. And so you might see God working in your situation. There might be something going on in your life, and you might be like, God, where are you? Where are you? And you go through that period of waiting, and now God has finally shown up, and you're like, okay, great, this is going to get better, and it doesn't immediately get better. That can happen to us too. And so what do you do in that period of time? You keep waiting on the Lord. And again, the reason for that is because God has the same ways as us or higher ways than us? Higher ways than us, that's right. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I think we can think about this um, corporately as well. Um, we, we thought a lot about individualistic versus the corporate way of thinking in our series on Ephesians um, last year. You know, we're, we're modern Western people. We tend to think about ourselves first. It's just how our culture is. So when we think about the gospel, for example, we think about how the gospel affects us. You know, Jesus, um, the, the first thing I'm going to say about Jesus is Jesus died for my sins. He didn't die for your sins. He died for my sins. Don't you know that? <laughs> Um, and it's true. I mean, Jesus did die for my sins. He did die for your sins. He died for all of our sins. He died for the sins of people who won't even repent. But that's where we sometimes put the part, we put the part that affects us specifically, as more important than the whole. See, God has this whole overarching plan that you can call the kingdom of God, this whole idea that God wants to take this world that he created back in Genesis 1, and he's not done with it yet. That, that his son, Jesus, is going to come and he's going to rule on this, on this kingdom and this kingdom on this earth, this restored earth forever. And that there's going to be a perfect society with perfect justice and there's going to be no war and, and no famine and no injustice anymore, right? Now, are you a part of that? Yeah. We're a very small part of it. I'm a very small part of it. There's a bigger thing going on here. There's a bigger thing going on here. And so when we encounter situations where we're waiting, then God does show up, but then things don't immediately get better, that's what I want us to think about. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than my situation. God's continuing to work. I can trust in him knowing that he will bring the whole plan to pass and that his purposes and plans are greater. If, if it was just about the Hebrews leaving and had nothing to do with rebuking Egypt and the Pharaoh for thinking that he could enslave God's people and steal God's blessing and, and, and be polytheist for the rest of their lives and never be confronted for their polytheism and their sin and their weakness and their ignorance, if it was just about that, then this part of our Bible would be a lot shorter. It would have been Moses and Aaron, tell everybody to pack their bags, we're leaving tonight. But that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's purpose. 
And there's something for us in that, I think. There's another lesson I think we can learn from this, and that is that um, when we think about the grand story of the Bible, Adam and Eve's primary mistake was deciding that they could decide right and wrong for themselves, right? So in that moment, Adam and Eve said, I don't need your infinite knowledge, your infinite wisdom, God. I want my knowledge and wisdom. I think it's better than your knowledge and wisdom, right? So in essence, what did they do? They did the same thing that this Pharaoh did. They decided that they were a god. The irony of that is, is that in doing that, they ruined everything. Just like Pharaoh doing this ruins everything for Egypt because he's battling with someone who actually is a god, is the most powerful god, the only true god, right? And I say it's also ironic because what happens here in Exodus is God calls a prophet, Moses, and one of the first thing that God says to Moses is, see, I will make you a god to Pharaoh. So by Moses submitting himself to Yahweh, in some sense, he becomes God, a representative of God, for sure, not all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, or all things we can say about Yahweh. He doesn't become any of those things. But he becomes, because he becomes the main representative of God, then he functions as a God to Pharaoh. He functions as a God to the people around him, to the people of Israel. It's a remarkable thing. Through his humility, he becomes a God in that sense. So in our personal lives, the first thing that we have to do in our lives is we have to resolve this conflict with Yahweh. Are we going to be like Adam and Eve and say, I'm a God, I don't need you telling me what to do? Or are we going to be like Moses and be like, you know what, I'm not so sure about all this, but I'm going to follow what you say. When we do that, when we become like Moses, even if we don't have a prophetic ministry, even if we never get up in front of a group and lead them or speak or do any of these things, to the people that you come in contact with, you become like God to them because you're representing your God. You're representing your Lord Jesus. Through the power of the spirit that we've been given, we have this incredible responsibility. And so I think it's an amazing thing that when we humble ourselves, we become spokespeople for God. We submit ourselves to his plan then we can help him enact that plan and save the people around us, leading them on their own Exodus journey. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that your ways are higher than our ways and that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're just limited creatures, God. We see ourselves, we see our lives, but we don't see them like you do. We see them from our flawed perspective, our flawed vantage points. Father, help us to see ourselves more clearly. Help us to see our families more clearly. Help us to see our brothers and sisters in our church more clearly. Help us to see, most importantly, your son more clearly and your purposes for our lives more clearly. Help us to draw people to you. Be with us, Lord. Help us to remain humble and to remain patient as we see you working, but things aren't getting better yet. 
Help us to be the spokespeople that you've called us to be. The images of you that you've called us to be, that you desire us to be. We thank you for this amazing opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.